Remember when we started the book of Romans, I showed you how that uh, you come out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for the most part, uh, up to the resurrection, uh, are really still dealing under the Old Testament situation where God's dealing with Israel. We saw when we started this book how that in the book of Hebrews it tells us that the testament does not come into effect until the death of the testator. So technically speaking, even though in your Bible Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are located in what we commonly call the New Testament, as far as time is concerned and as far as God is concerned, uh, all of those books up to the resurrection of Christ or His death and resurrection are still under the Old Testament. That's why um, he's dealing strictly with the nation of Israel. Church is not in effect yet. Church doesn't come into effect till the day of Pentecost. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's important to understand how that New Testament lays itself out. Then we get into the book of Acts. And what the book of Acts does for you, it kinda, it, it's kind of like a bridge. The book of Acts transitions you from what has been going on in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John under the Old Testament scenario with the nation of Israel, bringing you into the church age which uh, now has uh, come into effect after Christ's death. And that's why you'll find the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1 takes place uh, after His resurrection, and everything there is laid out for you. And basically the book of Acts is another great book in time uh, you're going to have to learn because it shows you how that transition unfolds itself and uh, it kind of puts the New Testament into effect for you. And then we come to the book of Romans is what we started. And the book of Romans is a book that we now know that uh, once we get through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, once we move through the transition of Acts, we come into the book of Romans. And the book of Romans is, and you've heard me say this many, many times, I really like the saying and the phrase that goes, the book of Romans is really the constitution of our Christianity. It's like what the Declaration of Independence or the Bill of Rights or our own constitution uh, is to this country. It lays down and sets down the parameters by which now the New Testament is going to run through. It starts out uh, kind of in a transition itself. And it, we, we looked in chapter 1 when we studied it. It showed how that the Gentiles uh, are really all messed up. And it showed that they got messed up because they live in unrighteousness. And we looked at that in great detail. Then we got to chapter 2. And we find out in chapter 2 that Paul takes an enormous amount of time there to lay out that the, the Jews are in the same mess. And they got in their mess because of their self-righteousness. And uh, we saw that uh, the Jews had set themselves up. In fact, the last time we were in the book of Romans, we closed out chapter 2. And we saw how that the Jews had set themselves up above the Gentiles because they felt like because they had God's favor in so many areas, and they did, and they had so many things that God had given them that they were superior over the Gentiles and everything. In fact, in chapter 2, the last thing we looked at, if you remember, in chapter 2, verse 25 through 29, was the fact that now they had taken the physical act of circumcision. And remember when we talked about that, I showed you how that in the Old Testament with Abraham, God gave the sign of circumcision uh, to the nation of Israel uh, through Abraham. And that was not, had nothing to do with their salvation. It had nothing to do with them uh, as far as uh, anything spiritually. But it was a sign that God had separated them from the rest of the world. And it was a sign of that covenant. And you'll remember that we took two weeks to go through uh, all the circumcisions in the Bible. There's three of them. I showed you how that there was a circumcision of the, of the Jew. And what the Jew has done with their physical circumcision, they have elevated it 
uh, to such a degree in Romans chapter 2 that they think that it's on the equivalent of their salvation, that if you're circumcised, you're going to heaven, and if you're not, you're not. And that's not, and Paul tells them, that's not what God ever intended for it to be. It was never given as a sign of their salvation. It was given as a sign that God had separated them from the world. And then we talk about the circumcision that deals with the Gentiles, and that's circumcision of their heart based on God dealing with their conscience. And then if you remember, we took, we took a Sunday, and I took a whole Sunday, and I laid out the third circumcision, which has to do with you and me as the church. And we went to Colossians chapter 2, and I, I told you that Sunday morning that, that if you understand the circumcision for the church, spiritual circumcision, the circumcision of Christ, that doctrine is so vitally, vitally important that it's the reason why so many of God's people doubt their salvation today. It's the reason why so many people struggle with really knowing for sure that they're saved or they get saved and then they go through life and they have some problems and some issues and so they think that because they've lost their fellowship with God, they've lost their salvation with God. And I showed you that Sunday that very truly based on the doctrine of the Bible and the circumcision of Christ, if you have truly been saved, if there was a true time in your life where you have asked the Lord Jesus Christ to come into your heart and save you, then what transpired at that exact moment was what the Bible talks about, and we laid it out in great detail that Sunday morning, was what the Bible calls an operation of God made without hands and putting off the body of your flesh from your soul. And then God seals that, and from that point on, that's what makes you God's child. I went through the whole process, of, remember that Sunday, of why God had to do it that way. It's the only way God could dwell inside you and I who were sinners. It's the only way that God could really do anything in our lives as sinners. And uh, you know, He had to do it that way. So you should understand that now. I think that when we come through chapter 1 and chapter 2, the overall theme or the overall concept that God is trying to get across to you and me whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, that a relationship with God will always be based on your heart attitude, not something that you do. And I think that in itself is a misunderstood doctrine today. We've got a lot of God's people out there that think they get some kind of favor with God by what they do. We know now from our Bible and for many, many years of teaching the Bible that you don't get any favor from God from what you do. You get favor with God with a relationship you build with Him one-on-one -on -one and your spiritual relationship. So today we're going to begin chapter 3, and we're going to see our, our lessons and our teaching progressing uh, as we move on through these chapters. And uh, in, now chapter 3, 4, and 5 begin kind of basic another set of doctrines for us. And yet there, there's one main doctrinal theme that it follows, but it, there's so many doctrines in it that we're going to take a lot of time and go through it because I want you to understand it. You remember, and I said this already, uh, not to repeat myself, but for help you put it in perspective. You remember I told you in chapter 1, just a few moments ago, that Paul writes chapter 1 to show you and I how the Gentiles think and how they've got themselves into the mess they're in because of their unrighteousness and the way they live. Then in chapter 2 he comes back and he shows us that the Jew, even though they're God's chosen people, and even though God had given them all of the things that they've had, they have taken that and raised it up to the point where they are, have become self-righteous. And now they find themselves in the same mess. Unrighteousness, self-righteousness, all ends at the same street. 
and it's called Dead End Street as far as God's concerned. Now in chapter 3, 4, and 5, God begins another great study of a doctrine. Uh, and this doctrine is called the doctrine of the righteousness of God. We've seen now that man, whether he's a Jew or a Gentile, by his own works, by the things that he tries to do, uh, has no righteousness with God. We absolutely all know now that the only way we can have a relationship with God is through our attitude of heart that we develop with Him. And what we find now in chapter 3, 4, and 5 is the beginning of the great doctrine that the only way the Jew and the Gentile can solve the problem that they have. One has a problem of unrighteousness. The other one has a problem of self-righteousness. But the only way they're going to solve that problem is for both people groups to get the righteousness of God in their lives. Now, that's what you and I needed before we got saved. That was our problem. Before we were saved, for the most of us, we were Gentiles. And because we were Gentiles, we lived an unrighteous life. And the only way you got saved is you got God's righteousness. Now, I could probably start at this end and work through, and 99.9% .9 of you would say, if I ask you the question, do you have God's righteousness? Probably maybe everybody in this room would say, yes, I do. But if I turned the question around and I asked you the question, how did you get God's righteousness? I dare and say probably not too many of you could explain the process by which you went through to get it. You know you have it, but you're not sure how you got it. Well, this is what Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5 begins to do. It not only shows you and me that we need to get God's righteousness to solve the problems in our life, but Paul begins to show you the process by which you get it. And this is crucial uh, in the book of Romans, and this is why the book of Romans started out the way that it did, and now it's coming to the point where almost chapter by chapter, he's going to break this thing down where you can grasp it and understand it, and uh, we can make the applications to it. Now, i got to tell you this again, and here again, this is nothing new. In chapter 3, especially in the first part, the first nine verses, we have a really another really tough passage here. It's not tough because of the fact that uh, of, of what is in it, it's tough because it's hard to read it. And I told you before, if you ever try to sit down and read the Declaration of the Independence or the Constitution or the Bill of Rights, you know how complicated the language is because of the legal style by which they write it. Well, Paul does the exact same thing. Well, watch for yourself here. Let me read it for you. Chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, thou, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness command the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto His glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather as we be slanders reported, that as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No, and no wise, for we have before proved both Jew and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Now, Father... We thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus today. We ask you to take this time and we ask you to open it up and uh, let these, your people, Lord, who have come today to uh, hear your word and to learn from your word. 
We pray, Father, that you'll open up our understanding and that you'll allow this passage, which on the outside appears to be hard and tough, uh, let us see it, Lord, in its simplicity as it really is. Let us get past the thing the way that he wrote it and see the message that you have for us. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen. You know, you see what I mean? I don't know how many times you probably and I have read that passage. I've got to be honest with you. It probably took me five years to get Romans down. And I had to work it from a, from, I mean, I'm slower than the average person anyhow. And I had to really work it. I had to take it apart almost bolt by bolt, nut by nut. But um, finally I got it. And once I got it, yeah, I saw how easy uh, it, it really is. You know, the two toughest books in your Bible, as far as I'm concerned, is the book of Romans and the book of Revelation. But they're tough for different reasons. You see, Revelation is not a hard book to read. But what makes Revelation so tough, it's a hard book to believe. See? Got a lot of weird stuff going on in Revelation. Most people today, most pastors, most churches teach you that the book of Revelation is allegorical. Allegorical is a $50 word. It mean, doesn't mean anything. Or you can make it mean whatever you want it to mean. Revelation is not allegorical. Revelation means exactly what it says, where it says it, and where you find it. I don't know of any passage in Revelation that is allegorical. It's all got a doctrinal truth. But you see, it's not hard to read, but it's hard to believe when you read it. Now, Romans is just the opposite. Romans is not hard to believe, but Romans is really hard to read, see? And what you've got to do is you've got to find a key to it. And for me, you know, when I get into a tough passage like this, and maybe this will help you in your own personal Bible study, most of God's people, when they study the Bible today, they don't really have a process by which they do it. The average Christian, they read a passage like that. They don't get it, so they give up on it, you know. Or they'll try to dig around a little bit, and when they can't get it, they'll move on. You've got to learn how to dissect passages of the Bible. Part of learning how to study the Bible is taking a tough passage and breaking it down. For instance, when I look at this passage here in the first nine verses, which are admittedly tough to read. I mean, I remember the first time I read it, I just scratched my head and said, oh, what the heck, man, I'll just move on to something I can get, you know. I'll go back to the ten spiritual laws or, you know, the story of Zacchaeus, something I can get my hands around, you know. But when you get into Romans chapter 3, you're in a, a passage that is written from a tough aspect. Now, for me, when I get into those tough passages, and I'm no different than you are, what I, I may just follow a little different procedure. What I do is I begin to take those passages and break them down. You know what I got in Romans chapter 3 in the first nine verses? I got three different sets of questions. And that's the first thing you do. You've got to divide it out and find out you've got three different questions being asked or three different sets of questions being asked. And that's the first thing you've got to do. You've got to break it down where you see, because you try, it's, like, you know, it's like trying to eat a whole pie. You know, when I go, I like, when I go get a pizza, you know, and we're, we always, you know, we always do things like this. You know, people try to just eat the whole thing. When I get a, I, I, when I order a pizza and I call it on the phone, now I know they cut pizzas into, into, into 14 pieces or 12 pieces. Now I know I can't eat 12 pieces. So when I order it, I have the guy cut it in six pieces because I can eat six pieces, you see. And that's how I do it. And that's what you got to do with the Bible. You got to break it down. You can't just eat the whole thing at one setting. So when I look at a tough passage, it may be in Isaiah. It might be in Revelation. It might be in Romans 3. What I've got to do and what you've got to learn to do is look at that passage and then break it down in in the fashion or the format that it goes. And when I take this 
admittedly a tough passage and break it down into three sets of questions, then it becomes easy to understand. And uh, you'll see that uh, uh, it's it pretty... Now, first thing I notice in, in chapter 3, uh, in verse 1, is that what we're reading here is a continuation of what he said in chapter 2. Now, that's very important. You always want to check the beginning of the chapters. If you got a moreover, if you got a therefore, that, that's always a good key for you. And uh, if you got a question at the beginning of the chapter, it's usually a question that is being asked on what he just said in the last chapter. That's vital. That gives you a, that develops a context for you. I now know that chapter 3, however tough it is, however it may seem to be hard, I now know it's tied back to chapter 2 in some form or the other. Look what he says in in, in 3.1. What advantage then, see, then, based on what he just said, what advantage then hath the Jew? That question is based on what he said back in chapter 2. And this tough passage is easy to understand when you break it down, as I said, around the three questions or really the three series of questions. Let me give you the questions first and then we're going to come back because, you know, you, you want to begin to break down Romans 3 in your Bible and you should be following along in your notes as we're breaking it down. If you really want to get Romans, I'm telling you, if you stay with me every week, and I'm not giving you that much that you can't do it, If you stay with Romans every week and note it out, get the CD, sit down and then go back and thoroughly understand what I said and see it and then put it in your Bible as your notes, we will knock off a major book in the Bible that you may not have everything in it, but you'll have a commentary of it that details out for you as you come through the tough passages. There's lots of places in the Bible that are really hard for me that what I did is I found somebody who understood it, broke it down, and then... I got it in my understanding and then wrote it in there so every time I would read that passage I had my little commentary on the side which told me what I'm dealing with. Because you forget. I forget. I forget. We all forget. Especially when you got a book as big as the Bible and on the scale and the magnitude of the Word of God. All right. Here's the first question. First question is found in verse 1. And there's two parts to this question or two questions to this section however you want to do it. The first question is what advantage then hath the Jew? And what profit is there of circumcision? Now, that's your first set of questions. In in verse 3 of chapter 3, you have the second set of questions. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the word of God of none effect? That's your second set of questions. Now, the third set of questions found in 5, 6, and 7. And look, it's a little more complicated here. But it's okay. We'll work it all out. It's not that hard. We just take it. But if our unrighteousness command the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded uh, through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged a sinner? Now that's your third set of questions. And basically what he's saying in this question, what he's asked, somebody's asking this question, he's saying this, hey look, If God gets honor and glory out of everything and my sinning, God gets even honor and glory out of that, then how can God judge me at the great white throne judgment if he got honor and glory out of the wrong that I did? See, that's what he's asking. And these questions, once you break it down and you see it and you separate the simple from the complex, then you begin to have a better way of grasping it and understanding it. Now, now that I gave you those three, I'm going to come back and give you the commentary on them, and we're going to look at it, and then you can 
understand it and get it into your Bible because you want to get chapter 3 down here in these first nine uh, verses. All right, now we're going we're gonna to break them down around the three series of questions. All right, question number one. What advantage then hath the Jew? That was a question. Or what profit is there of circumcision? That's the second question or part of the first series of questions. Now, this question, ha- we already know now that this question has arisen because of what he said in the last chapter. So that's our first key. We're not left clueless here what he's talking about. So what we got to do, basically, is go back and look at what he said in the last chapter. And, uh, and here's the question. The question has arisen on base. He's saying there's no difference between, in chapter 2, he said there's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. Somebody's asking, well, if only a real Jew is one that is a Jew inwardly and, uh, and has nothing to do with the law, then what good is the law or the feast or the circumcision? Uh, what, why, how, does that make us, how, how does that make us any different or any better than the Gentiles? And, of course, the question they're asking here, if we are better than the Gentiles, and we both get to God the same way, then what makes us better? What advantage hath the Jew is what he's asking. What advantage do I have if we are all the same and we are supposed to be God's chosen people, then what advantage do we have as a child of God? And that's a great question. Within each one of these questions, you find a great doctrine being laid out. And the answer to this in its simplest form, and then I'll give you the... I'll give you the answer from the... We'll go through the Bible here in a second. But the answer in a simple form is the nation of Israel is not better than the Gentiles. But the nation of Israel is different than the Gentiles. And the key to this, chapter 2, and what the question is in chapter 3, is not that the Jews are any better. It's just the fact that the Jews are different. You know what that brings up? That brings up one of the great doctrinal teachings in the Bible about the difference between God's view of the nation of Israel and God's view of the body of Christ and God's view of the Gentiles. You realize in your Bible, you have three basic people groups. You have the Jews, you have the Gentiles, and then you have the Christians or the body of Christ, the church. You have three distinct groups. In the book of Romans so far, we've seen two of those groups defined, the Jews Chapter 2, the Gentile chapter 1, and now we're getting into dealing with the third group, which are the Gentiles. God's plan, and I fully don't understand all of God's plan, God's plan from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22, where eternity starts, and then off into eternity. God's plan, whatever it may be, is certainly built around those three people groups. It's built around the Jew, it's built around the Gentile, and it's built around the church. Now, the reason I know that is because God has three things that He ascribes to them. New heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. The new earth goes to the Jew. The new heavens goes to the Gentiles. And the new Jerusalem goes to the church. He's created a place in the the eternal sense for all those three people groups. Now, I don't want to confuse you with that because I know right now a million questions if you don't have a grasp of what I'm talking about. And that's something we can flesh out on Thursday night or you can come over and see me and I'll help you understand it. But for right now, just understand this. God has a plan. That plan starts in Genesis, and that plan ends in Revelation chapter 22 as far as earth is concerned. Once we get to Revelation chapter 22, if you know anything about your Bible at all, you know you're out into eternity. 
When you're out into eternity and all through your Bible, your Bible and all the plan of God is built around the three people groups that are found in the Bible. The Jew, the Gentile, and the church. Now, there's not one of them any better than the other. But they are different as far as they relate to the plan of God and what He's doing. And that's what the person here that's asking this question has failed to see. You realize that, and you probably know this, you realize that if we're the church and you're saved this morning and you're part of the church and you're a Christian, you know, another term for that church is called the bride of Christ. You realize that you and I as the church are Christ's impending bride, that He's the bridegroom. You know, when you get married and somebody pastor opens up Ephesians chapter 5 there uh, and, uh, and all, you know, and they start reading that down through there. I never go to Ephesians chapter 5 for weddings. I would go to Ephesians chapter 6 because if you're going to get married, you need to put on the whole armor of God, you see. You guys sing these funny songs, you know, that they sing out there, Whether thou goest, I will. And they look at each other. I like to sing the fight is on. Now, that works, man, see. I mean, I'm bringing up the where it's at today, see. Anyway, that's why I don't do many weddings. But, <laughs> but you're called the bride of Christ. And someday your bride is going to come. And the bridegroom is going to come. The Lord Jesus Christ. And when He comes back, He's going to take you in, in a spiritual union. Uh, you're going to have what is a type of it on planet Earth in the physical union between a man and a woman as a husband and wife. And, of course, we know that Ephesians 5, when he lays out marriage, he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So you and I as the church are Christ's bride. But most people don't understand that, God, they understand that concept, that we're Christ's bride, but they don't understand that the Old Testament nation of Israel is likened to God's wife. And when you go back to the Old Testament in places, the book of Hosea is a good place, uh, places in Ezekiel, you're going to find that just like the church is reverence to Christ's bride, the nation of Israel is likened to God's wife. So when we get out into eternity, everybody's happy, you see. Everybody's happy. God has His relationship with Israel. Christ has His relationship with the church. And the Gentiles get the best of both worlds because they have to get in all that through uh, the program that God has. And everybody lives, as the old story goes, everybody lives happily ever after. That's God's plan. So whoever's asking this question here doesn't understand that, as most God's people don't today. And they're saying, hey, if, if the only Jew is really a real Jew who is an inward Jew, and Gentiles have to have an inward relationship, then what advantage do we have as the Jew? And, of course, the question is, you don't have an advantage, but you are different as far as God dealing with you. Now, let's list some ways that God decided to use the nation of Israel differently than everything else. And if there is an advantage, here's it is. But this no way makes them better. It makes them different. Now, first thing he says there is you got the oracles of God. That means the Word of God. God, if you know anything about the Bible at all, you know that way back in Genesis, God looked around around Genesis chapter 11, Genesis chapter 12, and He was, in His mind, He wanted to bring out a nation. That nation was going to become the nation of Israel. That nation, God wanted them to be unto Him like a wife. 
He wanted to nourish that nation. He wanted to take care of that nation. He wanted to give that nation all the blessings. He wanted to procure all the good things to them and watch over them. And like a, like a husband, uh, you know, should be with his wife and, and take care of her and protect her and feed her and nourish her and cherish her. That's why you find all those attributes, you know, you should find them in a, in a marriage relationship. And, of course, uh, God chose the nation of Israel because He found a man named Abraham. And He found in Abraham what He was looking for. And that was a man who would be faithful, first of all, with his house and then with the house of God, the nation of Israel. So He calls Abraham out. And He says, Abraham, the first thing I've got to do is separate you from the world physically because there's a lot of ungodliness going on down there. So He sends Abraham out from the Ur of Chaldees, that modern-day Babylon or Iraq today as we know it, and uh, he takes him out of Iraq and he sends him to the Promised Land. And uh, it takes Abraham a while to get there, but he finally gets there. And when he gets into the Promised Land, uh, God tells him some things, or in the process of getting there, he tells him some things. He says to Abraham, he says, you know what? In you and the nation that's going to come out of your seed, talking about Israel, he says, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Every blessing on this planet is going to come through you. In fact, the Savior is going to come through you. And as Paul told the Jew here, you want to know what's different about you than the Gentiles that gives you an advantage as far as if you're looking for an advantage? First of all, God gave you the Word of God and everybody on this planet, if they're going to get the words of God, have to get it from the nation of Israel. You have a Bible in your hand today, and most of you have King James 6 to 11 authorized version. We know that as a, 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 a translation of the Gentiles. We know that, that it comes either from Cambridge or Oxford in its original editions, and uh, you find a lot of Americans come up after that. But originally, we know the history of that, and we come down through that. But the bottom line is this. It may be a Gentile Bible, and you may have a Gentile New Testament that the Jew doesn't accept, but it came through the nation of Israel. You have an Old Testament. It's not the same order of books that the Jews has, but they are the same book. You know why? Because the oracles of God, oracle meaning oral, out of God's mouth, the oracles of God came through the nation of Israel. The next thing, if you want to put it down, you're going to find that salvation, John chapter 4, verse 22 says, salvation is of the Jew. God chose the nation of Israel above all other nations, not only to give the Word of God to the world, but give salvation to the world. And that's why what he was talking about with Abraham back there when he said, In thee will all the nations of the earth be blessed. God brought it through the nation of Israel, and in fact it was the nation of Israel that produced the seed of the woman that was the Lord Jesus Christ that brought salvation to this world. And of course, when you get on a little bit later on in Isaiah chapter 9, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, you're going to find that eternity is built around the nation of Israel. He's got everything set up. So when the Jew asked the question, what's the advantage? It's not the question that the Jew is better. The Jew is not better. But the Jew is different. And it forces us to look at those three people groups that you can better understand what God is doing. Now, in eternity, the job of the nation of Israel, and I'm not going to get into this this morning because it will take us till next Sunday to get it all laid out. But in eternity, the job for the nation of Israel is not the same as the job of the church. The job of the church is not the same as the job of the Gentiles nor the job of the nation of Israel. In eternity, all three of them have three distinctly different functions. 
and they're completely separate, yet they come together, much like this church. We have, what, 150 individual personalities, people, temperaments, and everything that goes along with it, but the church is supposed to blend into one in Christ. Well, in eternity, you're going to have the Jew, the Gentile, and the church, three different identities, but they're all going to be one in God's kingdom, but it comes through the nation of Israel. So when somebody asks the question there, you know, what advantage has the Jew? If there's any advantage at all, and this advantage, as I said, doesn't make them better, but it helps you understand the difference of why God chose the nation of Israel and, very frankly, why God is putting up with the nation of Israel right now. Let me just say this to you so I give you the whole picture. You look at God calling out the nation of Israel and God calls out the nation of Israel and God brings them out and He takes care of them. He does everything He's supposed to do. And then in the Bible, in the book of Hosea, you're going to find that Israel, she goes after other gods. She gets into Baal worship. She gets into all the things that are out there. And God takes that and, and uses the example of a man and a woman that are married and the woman steps out on her husband and goes out with another man. And therefore, what happened was this. God, the Bible says, uh, put Israel away. In other words, gave her a bill of divorcement. God separated himself from the nation of Israel. Much like we have many times in a marriage where they get separated and it unfortunately leads to divorce. In this case, even though God is separated from the nation of Israel, God shall also understand the number one theme of the Bible in everything that we do is restoration. So God, at some point, is going to restore the nation of Israel back to himself. And that's what happens when Israel goes through the tribulation period. Right now, the nation of Israel has no consciousness of God in the biblical sense. It's going to take going through the most horrendous time on the history of this planet to wake them up, much like some of God's people. Some of you are saved and on your way to heaven, and many of God's people are saved on their way to heaven, and many of God's people get so far out of touch with God, the only way God can ring their bell is to literally come down and ding-dong ring their bell. And it's that kind of wake-up call that many of us have to have that we get our act together and get our head. Well, think of that same process with a nation. God comes down and rings your bell because you're His bride. He don't want you hanging out with something or somebody else. God comes down and rings Israel's bell because she's His wife and He wants her restored. So once Israel goes through that terrible period of time called the tribulation period for seven years, then God restores the nation of Israel and Christ gets His bride and like every nice story, then we live happily ever after. And it's a love story come true. And of course, that's what's taking place here. So what you're seeing here, and you need to understand, is that there's no advantage to the sense of being better, but an advantage to the sense of what God is doing with the different people groups. And that's a great doctrine unto itself. Well, let's look at question number two then. And I like this one. For what if some did not believe? Shall the unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Now, this second question is real simple. And it basically is asking this. If somebody quits believing God in God or the Bible, does that change anything? I, I love this. People, <coughs> people have the wildest imagination. They get bigger than themselves sometimes. Guy said to me one time, well, I don't believe the Bible anymore. Like, that changed. Like God was saying, oh, no, now what are we going to do? Oh, so-and-so don't believe the Bible anymore. Oh, we're going to have... God could give a flip whether you do or you don't. You know what? It's your choice to take that position if that's what you want. I wouldn't recommend the choice, but it's your choice. It's your choice. 
The Bible's absolute. Always has been, always will be. Thank God the Bible doesn't take me or you believing it for it to work. God gave it as an absolute book. The Bible is the, the anvil that all the hammers of religion have been broken on. All the hammers down through history of philosophy. All the hammers of all the religions. All the hammers of science have been pounded on and broken on that anvil, the Word of God. It's the absolute truth of God. And it stands, it stands, and it will always stand. Men said sometime, well, I don't believe it anymore. Like it meant something. Back in the 1800s, we had when the great German mines had destroyed everything uh, in, in Europe after the Reformation. By 1800, Europe had raised up the, what we know today as the humanist, the great humanist, David Hume and, and Voltaire and all these great guys. It was around the middle of the late in the 1800s that a, a guy by the name of, a good old German guy by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche, he gave a great declaration to the world. And when he got up in front of all the great humanists and all the great minds and all the great German rationalists that had literally taken God from Europe and the Bible out of people's hands. They, that's why Europe is the way it is today. Europe is absolutely amoral. It's got the biggest churches in the world. Some of those churches are, are bigger than three or four football fields. Been built in a 900 A.D. And yet on Sunday morning, three people be in that place. They're museums. Nobody goes to church in Europe. Nobody believes in God in Europe anymore. Europe is amoral. And it's because of, of what happened when they let the Bible be taken out of their hands and guys, uh, the great minds gave a humanistic philosophy. Much what's happening like happening in America. America runs about 100 years behind Europe. Friedrich Nietzsche got up. One of his great meetings came to the pulpit. And everybody was all excited about the great Nietzsche and what he had to say how he was going to tell them all the great truths of, of the human mind. And Nietzsche got up and made one of the greatest statements down in the history of the world. You know what he said? He got up and he declared to everybody in that place that God had died. God was dead, he said. Place applauded and cheered and crowd was high. He got up like he said some great statement. He got up there and he made the declaration that based on his analysis... <laughs> based on his investigation, based on his reason and intelligence that he was coming to the known world and telling everybody, hey, folks, God is dead. You know, I bet up in heaven they just about split a gut. I bet you when he got up, when that thing resounded up there, you know, I bet you, I mean, to Michael the archangel and all the angels looking over there, you know, hanging out and checking that thing out and witnessing that, and then, and then Nietzsche comes up to the podium and they say, hey, come here, guys, come here, come here, come here. I mean, here he is on the throne. The ancient of days, the eyes of a burning fire, the one that is spent all through time that no man on earth, no army, no nation, no government could ever stand before him. He split the Red Sea. He stopped the sun in Joshua and all the things that he did. Now Nietzsche steps up. And uh, this is where in the Bible it says there was silence in heaven in the space of a half an hour. <laughs> heaven was quiet. And this little pip squeak with a PhD, with a post hole digger. <laughs> he took his education and piled it higher and deeper. Finally gave him a PhD. Piled higher and deeper. PhD. <laughs> For you slow folks. He comes up to that podium with all the assembled, with God on the throne. And 
everybody singing hallelujah. Everybody praising God. And God, the great power of the universe. And this little pipsqueak comes up to the podium and says, God is dead. I bet you heaven just went into a spasm. I bet you there was angels throwing their crowns up in the light years ahead and, and hanging off the banners of the heaven, just, just splitting the gut that a little pipsqueak guy had come to the conclusion that God had died. And there he is sitting on the throne. Boy, Nietzsche's going to get a revelation of the great white throne judgment. Story goes, I don't know if it's true or not. Back that time, there was a lot of radical Christians. Those old Anabaptists and some of those Baptists, you know, were pretty radical. Story goes that at some point in his life, Nietzsche died. And they buried him down there in the cemetery. A couple of his pious friends came out about two or three days later to put some flowers on his grave. And, some, and I believe it was probably some old Bible-believing Baptist. He got over there with a paintbrush and he wrote on that tombstone, Nietzsche's dead, sign God. It says, the second question, for what if some do not believe? So what? So what? Back in the 80s, a little charismatic song. You know, little charismatics, they can't ever get it exactly right. It's all based on how they feel, see? A little song that everybody was singing, had a great time. It kind of went like this. God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. Boom, boom, God said it. I believe it. God settled it for me. Hey, let me tell you something. God said it. That settles it. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. Amen. Take that verse out of your song. What do, you, what do you mean? Because you believe it, that settles it. The fact that God said it is all that matters. You and I believing does not change the impact of that absolute book. We get the blessings when we do, but it's your choice. Your choice. And then verse 4. This is my favorite verse in the Bible. God forbid, let God be true and every man a liar. There it is. There it is. Let God be true and every man a liar. I don't believe anything anybody tells me unless it bases to that book. That's why when you believe the book's your final authority, then the book becomes your final authority. Got a lot of lip service with God's people today about God and the Bible. Well, I believe the Bible's the final authority. Yeah, you just can't go anywhere in it to find out how to make it authoritative when you hear something you don't understand. You got the head knowledge, but you don't understand how to use it the way God intended for it to use. Let me tell you something. That book will answer every question you find yourself in in any situation you've got in life. The principles are there. We're, we're a bunch of Baptist charismatics. We, got a, we, 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 we get a problem, so we, we pray to God. Oh, God, deliver me from this problem. Help me with this. I'll do better. And then we go down the road, and what we expect? We expect a, an F-84 from Whiteman Air Force Base to fly over there, go into the Royals game for the Star-Spangled Banner, and, it to, and God to take over the controls, hit his smoke burners, and then right in the sky, Dear Bob, here's my answer. Not how God does it. God answers you through this book. No other way. Now, he may use other people in your life to get you to the book, but at the end of the day, if it isn't in here, you're wasting your time. 
You can say it's the absolute authority all your life. We just don't live our lives and use it like we believe it. You know why we don't in most cases? Because we really don't want to hear what it says anyhow. We just want to whine because of the problems we're in. We don't want to fix them. We don't want to change it. Oh, no, we may have to make too many hard-line decisions. We just want to whine about it. God come down and fix it and then do what we want to do. I've said for years and years and years, everybody looks at the Bible and it's, a, it's, a, it's like a menu at a restaurant. You go in and pick what you want, pick what you're hungry for, and then tell the waiter, bring me this food. It's what we do with the Bible. We look at the Bible like we look at a Cabela's magazine. Get it in the mail, you go through it, and then you order what you want. I'm going to tell you something. The closest thing you'll ever get to understand the Bible is going down to City Union Mission. The closest you'll ever get of understanding how this book works is going down to City Union Mission. Say, how does that help me figure out? You know what? They don't get to pick what they eat. They walk in there, they're not going around and saying, what would you like to have today? And what would you like to have? Would you like your, fr would you like your toast toasted? <laughs> huh? What would you like to have? Oh, you're, you, what would you like? Would you like? Yo, they have one thing, and it's not very good. They probably feed them for 35 cents a person. We might start eating there on Sundays ourselves when we go down there, honey. Save a little money. That's almost, that's almost a quarter of a gallon of a gas. <clears throat> you walk down there, they don't get to pick. Somebody in the back is fixing what they're going to eat. Now, you sit down there. Are you hungry? Yes, I am. Here's some food. Well, that's not what I want. Are you hungry? Yes, I am. Here's the food. Well, can I have my, can I have my, are you hungry? Yes, I am. Then there's the food. Eat it or don't eat it. That's the greatest example you have of the Bible. Except it's got a lot better food. But you don't get to pick and choose on this menu what you want. When I go certain places, I always ask them a question. Are your french fries seasoned? I hate seasoned french fries. I know there's a verse in the Bible someplace that thou shalt not eat seasoned french fries. <laughs> Why you want to take good french fries and put seasoning on them? What are you trying to prove? And I'll ask them, are these french fries seasoned? Yes, they are. Could you leave them off? Yes, we will. Thank you. And by the way, your tip depends on whether they're off or not. Okay? Now, I have that right at Shoney's or I have that right at Applebee's or I have that right wherever you go to eat, Fuddruckers, wherever. You don't have that right. The fries are seasoned here. The seasoning is put on there for your benefit. You say, whoa, that's hot. You need hot. What? Burn my mouth. Well, some of the things you've been saying and burning God's ears. How about it? See how it works? See how it works? I love this verse. Let God be true and every man a liar. You know what it's saying? Let's read the next verse. Next verse is great. As it is written, Thou that mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. You know where that's from? That's from 51.4. You know what that thing's saying? It's saying that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. You know what that's saying? That's saying all you smart intellectual people that think God is dead or you're smarter than God or you got the answer. You know what it's saying? When you're judged at the great white throne judgment, God's going to give you your chance to show everybody in the universe how much smarter you are than God. 
We think the great white throne judgment, we talked about this Thursday night. We think the great white throne judgment is just where somebody comes up and they got a big level up there, you know, and you push the level and you're down, they go. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no. All your life you've been shooting your mouth off of how much you know more about it than God does. All your life you've been blowing hot air about God is this, God is that, and this is not the way to do it, and God is this, and God is that, and religion is this, and Christianity is this. Hey, at the great white throat judgment, you're going to get to prove your point. What a day that's going to be. What a day that's going to be. I told you in the Bible Thursday night that there's four laughters in the Bible. Four laughters in the Bible. There's a laughter of sinful merriment. There's a laughter of skepticism. There's a laughter in the Bible for the victory of the Christian. And then there's a laughter of God. And the Bible makes it very clear that the great white throne judgment is the last laugh. And we all know the phrase, he who laughs, laughs, laughs best. You laughed at God and made fun of God all your life? Hey, he's going to return the favor. He's going to give you your shot. He's just not going to come up there and dump you off without you letting putting out the hot air. He's going to let you stand there. Hey, you got all the time in the world. It's eternity now. Nobody's in a hurry. You can lay out everything you wanted to say. Prove your thesis that God is dead. Prove your thesis that that Bible is worthless. Prove your thesis that your lifestyle was better than what God had for you. Get your shot at it. You betcha you will. Boy, you better study Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, for you do. For that ain't called the great white throne judgment for nothing. It's a courtroom. It's a courtroom. And you're going to stand before the judge at a great white throne. And you're going to be your own attorney. And up against you is going to be the prosecuting attorney that is the most absolute mind the world has ever seen. Satan himself. Read it over there. Read it in Zechariah chapter 3, the picture of somebody coming up before God with filthy rags on him and Satan standing at his right hand to persecute him and to accuse him. Why do you think he's called the accuser of the brethren? And you're going to be up against not only God, but you're going to be up against a man who used you, that you yielded yourself to, that knows everything about you, that knew every motive about you. And when you try to open your mouth and justify yourself, he's going to open his book and he's going to nail your hide. At the end of that court, you're going to have nothing to say. You know what you're going to say? You're going to say, so be it. And down the hell you go. And the last thing you're going to hear as you tumble down to that lake of fire is a roaring laughter of a hundred billion saints with the voice of Almighty God. You know why? Because he who laughs, laughs, laughs best. Have at it, pal. Enjoy it. He's coming. He's coming. And when he shows up, he's going to come like a hungry giant coming home for lunch. He's going to tear this place apart. Question number three. Now here where it gets a little, we've got to look at this here. And we, here's where we get into some good stuff here. Let me read it five through nine again. But if our unrighteousness, I'm going to read it real slow. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. In other words, he's saying, I'm putting this in a, in a human concept here. God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my life unto his glory, why yet am I also judged a sinner? Now here's the situation here, and you're going to find this. Now the key to understanding this third set of questions is found in verse 8, the next verse. And not rather, and then notice you got parenthesis, as we being slanderously reported, 
as some affirm that we say. Ah, then this next question has to do with an accusation that has come up against Paul. It's a slander. Slander is when somebody says you said something you didn't say, or slander is when somebody wants to slander your character, take half-truths, take the truth, take no truth, and build a premise around it. Now, let me just stop here for a minute, and, and, and we've got some young men that, and young ladies that, you know, certainly in years to come will, if not here, certainly someplace else will, will be involved in ministry to the place where you will head up maybe a ministry here or you'll be responsible for preaching up here or teaching at some point. <clears throat> You're working with people right now. That's only going to get <clears throat> better as time goes on. But let me just say this to you. If you're ever contemplating going into the ministry, if you're ever contemplating where someday you want to you wanna be in charge of people, you need to write it down someplace right now and just keep it uh, someplace close to you. Put it in your wallet. Put it someplace. <clears throat> but mark this down. If you're ever going to preach the Bible, you will be slandered. It's just a matter of time when. Paul faced it all of this time. He's over there when he writes to the church at Corinth, who's in a big mess. He gets them all straightened out, and he starts to help them, and then in the church at Corinth, there's some people who don't appreciate what Paul's doing, and they try to slander him. He makes reference to it all the time about somebody uh, teaching, taking his teaching or, or false teaching or, or lying about what he's saying. Hey, I'm going to tell you, as long as there will be time and as long as there will be human beings and as long as there is absolute truth, the devil's going to use people to slander the truth. That's one of the ways he works. It's just that simple. Now, you don't need to get mad about it. You don't need to, you, when it happens, you don't need to get frustrated about it. You know what? I've learned over the years, the greatest slander the greatest defense against slander, ladies and gentlemen, is the truth. What do you care what somebody says you said or you didn't say or a half-truth of what you said because it goes back to that old concept that I've told you. When nothing else tells, time tells. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. There's a guy running around town here. I don't ever see him anymore. Uh, but he came to one Bible study years ago and somebody asked a question on, on, on abortion. And I laid, the, I laid the question out from the Bible standpoint and uh, took, that, took that thing through the Bible and laid it all out. And ever since that night, that guy's been going around this town and everybody he runs into that knows me, he says, oh, your pastor teaches that it's okay to get an abortion. And that's not what I said that night. That's been some 15, 20 years ago. It was about six months ago, a couple was coming over and he goes to their church now. And he said, when my, this guy found out that you, we were going over you, he just railed on you, railed on you about your terrible teaching on, on abortion and all that stuff. And I said, you know what you need to tell him to do? Tell him to come on over next Thursday night. I'll give him the first half hour. Won't interrupt him. Give him a free board, man. I'll give him the first half hour. No, I'll give him the first 40 minutes. No, you know what? If I tell my people, we'll extend that thing for three hours that night. I'll give him an hour and a half. I'll give him an hour and a half, but I'll take a second hour and a half. I guarantee you, at the end of that night, there won't be anybody's mind who knows what they're talking about when it comes to the book. I guarantee you. Go back and tell him that. He went back and told him that. That's been six months ago. Anybody seen him on Thursday night? Boy, if I was out there after somebody was teaching heresy and I told him it did, and then somebody offered me the same deal, I'd be there with bells on, baby. Somebody say to me, well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a predestination guy. I believe in Calvinism. Da, 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 or I'm a Jehovah Witness. Or I'm an ad. Why don't you come to our Bible study and, and I'll give you. I'd be there so fast your head would swim. 
That guy, if you gave him a Bible, he couldn't show you the definitive verse on where life starts and the definitive verse on where life ends if his life depended on it. You give him a Bible and open up, he'd be like a blind bat backing in backwards. I love my favorite new expression. If he wouldn't know the truth, if I caught up in his lap and called him mama. The book stands for itself. People are going to slander you. That's the way it goes. Hey, you can probably go back there or get Jan. Jan, stand up back here. Jan, how many years my material you got on tape? About 88. 88. 88. How many years is that? That's nine years ago. Oh, no, that ain't right. How many? You were born in 88? Oh, that makes us feel old. She was born in 88. Oh, man. No, my back really does hurt. 20 years. My wife goes back farther than that. Though she was born in 87. You go back 30 years on me. Pull out what I was preaching back then. If you find anything different, I may know it better now. You find one thing. That I preach different now than I did 30 years ago, I'll buy you the biggest steak in this town. You know why I can say that? Because you won't find it. I may preach it better. I believe now what I believe the day I got saved. Because the men that taught me were men who knew doctrine. They taught me right. My job was to teach you right. Some little whimsical pipsqueak comes around and says, well, this or this or this or that. All right, come on, big boy, put your guns on. It's that simple. Don't shoot your mouth off. Here I am. Come get some of me. <laughs> be the worst day of your life when it comes to the Word of God. Guy said to me one time, Well, you think you know the Bible better than anybody in the world? I said, No, that's not true. But I do know it better than you do. You don't think so? Come on. It's that simple. But get used to it. Get used to it. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. You can't let it get you off track. You can't let it worry about you. If you got the truth, that takes care of it. That takes care of it. Truth always takes care of it. Simple as that. But Paul's being slandered. That's the approach Paul took. The approach Paul took was the fact that he never got upset about it. And he comes down through there and he, he, simply says, he simply says, hey, you know what? That, that's not true. Now here's what they're saying. And they've twisted what he said. Look at verse 7. Somebody's saying, if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged a sinner? Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness command the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous because he take advantage? Now, in other words, he's saying this. And we know this is true. God gets honor and glory at everything. If you're out of fellowship this morning and you're not living right, God is going to get the honor and glory out of that one way or the other. Now, He would prefer to get the honor and glory out of you living right. But He, he demands, because of who He is, He demands the honor and glory of everything on planet Earth. It's His creation. He made it. There's no other God like Him. And He demands honor and glory from everything He created. And he will get it from you or me one way or the other. 
Now, this guy's saying this. This guy's saying this. Justin, you got your verse from last night? Get it ready. This guy's saying this. This guy's saying this. This guy, see, I keep saying that because I forgot what I was going to say, and I got to come back to me here a few minutes here. No, this guy's saying this. He's saying, hey, you know what? If my lie, if my ungodliness, if God gets the honor and glory out of that, then how is God going to judge me someday if he got honor and glory out of my sin? See what they're saying? That's what they're coming at. That's what they're coming at. Somebody is twisting his teaching and saying, if God gets honor and glory out of everything, and I'm on righteousness, he gets honor and glory out of that because it lends itself to him. Well, that's what he says. Verse 6 says, then how then can God judge the world? Verse 8, it says, let us do evil that good may come. People are always trying to get around the thing, aren't they? Always try. had a guy one time, smart kid, educated beyond his intelligence. He said to me years ago, he said, came to a Bible study and he came back and come in to see me and he says, well, I got a question for you. He says, I'm an unsaved man. And I said, well, I'm sorry about that. I said, I hope someday you get saved. He said, well, I don't think I'm going to get saved. And I said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. He says, yeah. He said, you want to know why? And I said, not particularly, but if you want to tell me, go ahead. He says, he says, well, let me ask you a question. He said, now this is a philosophical question. I said, oh, that'll be good. That always fits in well with the Bible. He said, did God allow sin to come into the world? Yes or no? I said, yes. Then basically, God is responsible for sin coming into the world. Yes or no? He was real big in this yes or no stuff. He didn't have to tell me. I knew the answer. Yes. He said, well, let me ask you a question then. If God allowed sin to come into the world, and God permitted sin to come into the world, and I was born a sinner after God allowed sin to come into the world, why do I have to get saved? How is a righteous God who always does right going to judge me a sinner when he made me a sinner in the first place by allowing sin to come in? And I said, oh, I thought you had a tough one to ask me. That's real easy. But you ain't going to like the answer. The same God that allowed sin to come into the world and did bring sin in is the same God that came down to himself and paid the price to take it out, therefore exonerating himself of any responsibility. Your move, pal. You know where his move was? Up and out. They're, they're, they're coming to the point where they're, they're, they're accusing Paul, they're slandering Paul. All right, Justin, stand up and read your verse real loud. Now, there it is. He that despises the word shall be destroyed. Not maybe. Not, you better watch out. He that despises the world shall be destroyed. Now, the answer to this is real simple. The answer to this is real simple. Number one, God demands honor and glory from all his creation. Do you ever notice about all the things that God creates? Do you ever notice that everything God created obeys what God tells them to do? Do you ever notice on their own animals leaving other animals of their species to mate out of species with another animal? Did you ever notice a mother dog 
that ever just abandoned her little puppy dogs unless there was some circumstance that she had no... But in a natural sense, that's not the way it works. There, the, everything, even the wind, even the sea, obeyed His voice. In all of God's creation, the only thing that ceases to obey God in every turn of events is you and me. God has everything else obey Him because He gets the honor and the glory out of everything that He created. And the person who asked this question has not understood the great principle taught in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and a little bit later on in Romans chapter 9. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 20 says this, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. If, therefore, uh, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel of honor, sanctified, meet for the master's use, and prepared for every good work. Romans chapter 9 verse 17 says, For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why does he yet find fault? Who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, old man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing that formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me so? Hath not the potter... Power over the clay, the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another vessel unto dishonor. What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had afore prepared unto glory? You know what it's saying? It's saying the second thing you better understand that God has vessels of honor and God has vessels of dishonor. You know, the third thing you better understand, you get to choose which one you're going to be. He comes down there over there in Romans 9. He's talking about Pharaoh. What a great example. Somebody says, well, God, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Bible says, you better read the Bible. The Bible says, well, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Five times before the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, the Bible says Pharaoh hardened his heart. You know what God did? He just took the hardened heart Pharaoh already had and used it. You know why? Because there's vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. You know what he said? He says, for the Pharaoh, for the same reason have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee. Well, Pharaoh was against the children of Israel all day long. Never did recant. At the end, he tried to wipe them out and finally got killed in the Red Sea. You know what God did? He said, I want you to have... In a big house, there's vessels of honor and there's vessels of dishonor. There's some of silver and gold and there's some of wood and clay. You get to choose. Pharaoh went out there and tried to stop God's plan. What a hero Pharaoh would have been if he'd have stepped up there and said, let my people go. I think there's some great, great chances in history where men could have stood up and said the right thing if they had the courage that it has just shocked and changed the course of history. How about old Pilate, Pontius Pilate, when he brought Christ out there before the judgment and he brought him out there and he said, shall I crucify your king? What if old Pilate would have walked out there and took that, took his royal robe off, put it on Christ, took his might and scepter off and put it on his head, looked at that howling crowd of Jews and said, there's your king, crucify me. There have been more books written about him than anybody in the history of the world. 
He was in the right place to do the right thing, to be a vessel of honor. And he chose to be a vessel of dishonor. Pharaoh down there wouldn't let him go. Pharaoh should have stood up and said, They're God's people. We're wrong. They're right. Give them everything they want. Let's help them on their way. He couldn't do it. God would have got honor and glory out of that. But he didn't do it. He tried to stiffen his heart and harden his head and give all those things against God. And finally, God got the honor and glory anyhow. You know, when God drowned them out, brought all those plagues to finally go across the Red Sea, God drowns them all out. You realize as they're going down through their next 40 years of wandering down there, there's nations that were against God. There's nations that hated God, hated God's people. And when they come up to their borders, their king came out and said, Hey, boys, you Israelites, you're the ones that come out of Pharaoh in Egypt? Yes, that's right. Come on through. Anything you need? Moses and Joshua said, well, are we going to fight? He said, no, sir. I heard what your God did to Pharaoh. I don't want your God messing with me. I don't believe him. Don't want anything to do with him. But I don't want him doing anything with me either. You're his people. I saw. We heard what he did to Pharaoh. Mine's yours. Come on through. God got the honor and glory. He always does. He's going to get the honor and glory out of everything in your life. You get to decide whether you're going to be a vessel of honor or a vessel of dishonor. And somebody's here slandering Paul. They're turning it around and saying, hey, well, if living an ungodly life, God's get honor and glory out of it, how's God going to judge me? I just live my ungodly life, not change my ways, and God will, no, you're wrong. God will judge you. He'll judge you because anybody who despises the Word of God will be destroyed, and He'll judge you because He's going to get honor and glory out of it one way or the other. But you get to choose. You get to choose. You get to choose. Listen, kid. You give your life to him and he'll use it for his honor and glory. You keep it for yourself and he'll whack you as an object lesson and everybody will know, don't go where that kid went. No, there's a lot of grace today. I told somebody the last Ruth class we had, I told someone the story how years ago a kid came in to see me, nice sharp kid. Informed me that he wasn't going to do what was right with God. He'd gotten messed up in the world and he came in to tell me that he wouldn't come back to church. And I tried to reason with him and he said, you know what? He said, I don't, I, I don't need it. And I tried to tell him and it, one of the things he said to me shocked me and it bothered me for a long time. He said, you know what? I tried to say, God's not going to let you get away with this. He said, oh, Bob, come on. He said, I know people in your church. I hang out with them right now that are living like hell and they're saved people. And you know what? They get away with it. I'll get away with it. Now, how'd you like to have that blood on your hands at the judgment seat of Christ? You know what? About six months later, down in the Lake of the Ozarks, water skiing, having a great time, probably had too many beers to drink. Guy driving a boat, had too many beers, got him going too fast, put, cut too court, went into one of those shallows area, flipped over in an area that had stump about that on the water, and God just crushed his cranium on a big stump. I preached his funeral. You know what I told him? I said, there's a great object lesson before you here today, boys and girls. It wasn't a popular funeral. I don't preach funerals unless I can tell the truth. All this kumbaya stuff, holding hands, saying, well, so-and-so was a great person, you know, and we, know that they, we all know they're living like hell. I can't go there. I've been asked to preach funerals. I said, I can't do it. I don't mean to. I just got a pass on it. I said, pay the funeral home 150 bucks. They'll have some guy come in and do everything you wanted to do. I can't do that. 
I can't do that. I get up there and I, I told his mom and dad before they, I preached, I, I, this is what I'm going to do. He said, you know what? If somebody gets else gets spared by this because of his life and what he did, then do it. You know what? God got honor and glory out of that kid, but not the way God wanted to do it. You know what God does? A lot of grace, but sometimes God comes down and just picks somebody and, and whacks them and says, they need an object lesson. That's what he does. You know why? Because I don't know who you think you are. He's the potter. You're the clay. What are you telling him what you're going to do? Shall the thing form tell he that formed it where to come in and where to get out? You're out of your mind, kid. You're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. You don't get saved and just live your life the way you want to. There's a price tag that comes with that. Hey, God's going to get honor and glory out of your life one way or the other, but you get to choose how it happens. And I preached it, boy. I told him. I said, this kid right here, bless his heart, I love him. I want him to Christ. So I'm the one that want him to Christ. I'm the one that's preached at his funeral. I brought him into this world spiritually. Now I'm going to send him out spiritually. And I want to be honest with you. He didn't have to be here today. He chose that route. And I told him the whole story. Place crying, people weeping, people hanging all over the place. And about nine kids got saved that day. You know what? God got honor and glory out of his life. But it was the hard seven, man. You want to go that way? I must confess, I'm not sure it's seven when you do that. But it's hard, however the dice roll. You better learn three things about God. He's omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. He's omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. And he's omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. And he is worthy of all the honor and the glory that we can give him. The greatest joke that the devil ever played on the world is for God's people to think they can get saved and live their life the way they want to live it. The greatest joke, and it's evident of what Paul's dealing with here. Somebody's doing exactly in his day what God's people do today. They're listening what the man says, the man preached the truth, and then they slander what he says, change what he says, because they got their own personal agenda and they want to make him the price tag so they can do what they want to do. Well, you may slander Paul, and you might slander me, but there's one bigger than both of us that you will not slander, and that's God. He who laughs last, laughs best. Greatest joke devil ever played on humanity, found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. He said, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name, Christ, which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow to things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You know what that verse means? Work out your own salvation. It means after you get saved. you got to decide, vessel of honor or vessel of dishonor. You work it out. I've already worked out mine. It's not talking about working out to get saved. It means after you're saved, you work out. You decide. You and God, you come to that time when Him and life and you between you and Him, where you say, I'm going to do what you want me to do or I'm going to do what I want to do. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You know why God doesn't get upset about that? You know why we get upset much more about it than God does? You know why God, you never see God in a panic that way? Because first of all, God allows you to choose. No, I'm not saying you don't grieve him. I'm not saying he doesn't want you to do what's right. 
But let's face it, at the end of the day, he let them take whatever fruit they wanted off that tree. He didn't cop and say, oh, time out, you're being deceived. No, he told them what they were to do and not to do, and that's where he left it. He's told you what you should do, how you should leave, and that's where he leaves it. You know why? Because he's going to get honor and glory out of either way. You read that verse in Philippians 2? Did you see what it said? No, I know the idea is, you know, I know the idea is you think you can get saved and live your life your way you want to. That's whoever Paul's dealing with here. <clears throat> There's an element there <clears throat> that are slandering his teaching, saying, well, you know what, Paul? If he gets honor and glory out of everything, then why do I got to do what's right? I'll just let him get honor and glory out of my sin and just keep on having a good old time. The answer is, you don't want God getting that kind of glory out of your life. That verse says that in the name of Jesus, every, now, every knee should bow. Of things in heaven, things in the earth, things under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what? You better learn one thing today and one thing well. Because some of you get the idea <clears throat> that it's, it's a matter of whether you will or whether you won't accept Him as your Lord. I'm not talking about salvation now. I'm talking about after you're saved. That's what Philippians 2 is talking about. He needs to be Lord of your life. He wants to get honor and glory. He wants you to be a vessel of honor, not a vessel of dishonor. But it's your choice. But if you think for a split second that you're not going to bow your knee and confess your tongue and make Him Lord of your life, you're dead wrong. You'll either do it now under a dot of love and a grace where He can use you as a vessel of honor or you'll do it then when you lose everything and God has to take you home or wherever He whacks you and you will do it one place or the other. It's not a matter whether you will or you won't. Just when you will. You want to stiffen your neck now and you want to make your back strong and you think you can go against Him? Hey, you know what? I tried that route for the first 19 years of my life. As a 20, 21-year-old man, you know, as tough as I was, as I thought I was, and everything I had going in my life, you know what I did? I just bowed that knee, and I bowed that head, and I confessed to him that Jesus Christ will be my Lord. You know what I reality I came to? If I didn't do it then, I was going to do it over there. But I was going to do it one way or the other. I opted to take him as a God of love, not as a God of wrath. I opted to take him as a God that I could serve. I wanted to be used as unworthy as I am. And as many times as I failed him, I want to be and wanted to be and still want to be a vessel of honor. But there's some of God's people, you're just hell-bent on election of being a vessel of dishonor. And you think you're going to cut out. You think you're going to escape it. You think you're going to sidestep it. You think you're the exception to the rule. You think because God doesn't come down and whack you now that you skated. He locked your name off his clipboard, did he? You slipped through the cracks, did you? You think when you get to the job and see the Christ, you just go, everybody's going to be there, there's going to be so many people, you just kind of go like this and go on in? You insane? We got the idea because God doesn't come down and whack us today. We made it. You ain't made nothing. That Bible says that every knee will bend, every tongue will confess, every head will bow. You're going to accept him as the Lord of your life, either now as a vessel of honor or in that day as a vessel of dishonor. But you will do it. Now that's what you got in this third question. Christians, people are always the same. Never changes. You had people back there trying to slander what Paul was saying so they could do what they want to do. 
justify themselves, put it off on him. People walking around saying, well, you know what? If, how's God going to judge me, man? I'll just, I'll just live like hell, do what I want to do. How's a righteous God going to judge me? He'll judge you. He'll judge you. Because this book is absolute. At the end of the day, when you hear everybody out there that tells you what they want to tell you, and you're stupid enough to believe it, let me just give you a little bit of advice, son. Sweetheart, let me give you a little bit of advice. At the end of the day, let God be true and every man a liar. Just stick with that. Somebody teaches you or tries to get you to believe something in this book, you need to go drop kicking through the goalpost of life. Stand for truth. Stand for truth. Stand for truth. And having done all with all to stand. That's the job of the church. That's the job of the church. God, people are weak today. They're afraid today. An unsaved man, Edmund Burke, back in the 1800s, early 1900s, one of the greatest statements that an unsaved man ever made that fits into the Bible. You know what he said? He says, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Boy, that is as true a statement as there ever was. It's all it takes. All it takes is for God's people to get complacent, lose their militants. The book's absolute. Let God be true and every man a liar. And then finally in verse 9, he says this. What then? Are we better than they? No. In no wise. <clears throat> for we have before proven both Jews and Gentiles that they all are under sin. Paul just answered three of the questions of the arguments that have come up once he laid out the Jew and the Gentile. And it's obvious that back then, just like today, there's people that didn't understand what, what God was doing. The Jews aren't better. They're just different. And what does it matter that if somebody leaves this church and says, I don't believe it anymore? Oh, let's close the doors. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Let God be true and every man a liar. This church either stands on the book or it doesn't. Let me tell you something. You got an inkling. You got an inkling. Even an even a itchy twitchy that I ain't teaching that book the way it needs to be, do two things. First, come over, sit down, and show me where I'm wrong. And second of all, if I'm wrong, get out of here so fast you wouldn't know what hits you. That's my advice to you. That's the bottom line. The book is the book. It's what it is. And God wants you to be a vessel of honor, not a vessel of dishonor. Paul just answered all the arguments. And now he set the scene for understanding the great New Testament doctrine and principle about God's righteousness. He showed us that the Jews are all messed up. The Gentiles are all messed up. He showed us that following the law, following your conscience, won't fa fails to solve that mess. He's went through the Jews and showed them how their self-righteousness <laughs> doesn't cut anything with God. Now he's answered the argument before he gets into the doctrine of what people were bringing up and trying to twist his teaching or legitimate things that they were asking because they didn't understand how it all laid out. Acts is a book that brings you through and it brings you into Romans and now you're on bedrock and he's teaching the New Testament doctrines. They're going to make the church what it is. Now I suggest you do this. Outline these first nine verses through those three sets of questions. You don't have to get in all the illustrations and the things that I put in there. Condense it down that you understand and break this tough passage down. You see, it was tough when I read it. 
See how easy it is when you just start to take it apart. You look at that tough passage. You say, I got nine verses. Nine verses. And it doesn't make any sense to me. Nine verses. And then you start to see, whoa, there's a set of questions here, different set of questions here, different set of questions here. Break it down. Look at verse 1. Oh, what then? Oh, it's, a con- it's going on to what he said in the last chapter. Get it in the context. Break it down. Now, you have the basic stuff now to go down and put those things in and break that thing down into those three sets of questions that Romans chapter 3, one of the toughest passages in the Bible as far as to read, should have your answers. Next week, we'll get into on the next section of it and go on down through here and we'll get into another great doctrine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you so much. We thank you, Father.